This is Unfilter, episode 360 for April 28, 2021. San Nunes South Florida private school is stirring up controversy after its CEO says the school won't hire anyone, including teachers who get the coronavirus vaccine. Good afternoon. I'm Maribel Rodriguez. The Sentner Academy in Miami sent an email to parents calling the vaccine an experimental drug. CBS 4's Brooke Schaefer is live outside the school in Miami with reaction from parents. Brooke? Maribel, the CEO of the Sentner Academy, has shared conspiracy theories recently on her Instagram. Now she's making a move at her own private school saying teachers who want to work here can't get the COVID-19 vaccine. Hello, friend, and welcome into the People's History Podcast. This this is a fun one. I'm live a little bit later in the evening. I think everybody in the Discord room is drinking, and Joe Biden is about to go live with his first address to Congress. But I have some show ahead of time. This show, is it's, it's kind of like a mullet. It's going to be some information up front and then a lot of Joe Biden in the back. And I, I wanted to take a different angle. When I look at this show and I think about playing this a decade from now or even 30 years from now and and trying to conceive of what this time was like, something that I'll have wanted to have captured and I want to do it in this episode is a little bit of how crazy things still are and how wild they're getting this far into the pandemic. So this is a little bit of the COVID crazies this week. And we'll start with this situation that is a little on the crazier side of the COVID pandemic. New controversy concerning the coronavirus pandemic. A Miami private school now says it won't employ teachers or staff who get their COVID-19 vaccine. The Center Academy in Miami sent an email to parents calling the vaccine an experimental drug. CBS 4's Brooke Schaefer is live at the school in Miami. Now, I'm not going to defend the school. Um, and so it's like dangerous touching the third rail territory to even start here. But uh, I think one of the things that really drives me nuts is how much follow the science has been driven into our heads. But then when you talk about things scientifically, you're a doubter. So to even call the vaccine experimental, even though it only has experimental authorization by the Food and Drug Administration, is heretics. And I, and I fail and I struggle to understand that as somebody who – and I don't know if maybe I'm wired wrong – Maybe I've got some sort of personality imbalance, but I look at these things in the most pragmatic terms. This is a super fast developed vaccine. It is under emergency authorization. Ergo, it's safe to call it experimental. But so what? Lean into that. In fact, I think Americans would take pride in the the risk you know, after they reapproved the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and they said, well, there's a couple of risks, I thought, that's the one for me. You know what? I like it. I like taking the risk. You know what? Because hell yeah, the free and the brave for America, baby. <laughs> no, but really, I kid, obviously. But I think just lean the fact that, yeah, this 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 thing that you're gonna get injected into your arm, it's brand new. It is experimental, but that's how dire the situation is. You know, don't don't give it to me with padded kitty gloves here. Let's take it as it is. But even suggesting that something with emergency authorization is experimental is in itself controversial. So and then, of course, this school comes along and goes way beyond just that. With more, Brooke, good morning. 
Hey, Maribel, good morning. In that letter to parents, the school said this was not an easy decision to make. They said after speaking with some of their doctors, it is now their new policy to not employ anyone who gets that COVID-19 vaccine. Here we have one of the most powerful tools in our arsenal to protect ourselves and get out of this problem. This doctor here, too, if you're you're probably not watching the video version, but this doctor, she's been on, she does funny, She, if you're in Miami, you know this is true, too. She does all of the hits or the interviews for the local news, so it's always this gal. And she does different green screen backgrounds depending on the program that she's on, which is funny. I don't know why she would change it up. But somebody needs to tell her t- the, the trick to make a good green screen work, because you, if you're watching the video version, you can see exactly what I'm about to say. To make a good green screen work, you need to have the green screen out of focus, the background out of focus, and your face in focus. And she just, webcams just don't give you a lot of control, at least not, they don't expose it easily to consumers. And so she has the exact opposite because they went and found some like clinic JPEG, you know, they went on Google Images and doctor's office with bed, you know, or whatever, and found a JPEG and then threw it in the background. Of course, the JPEG's in perfect focus and she's out of focus. (laughs) And then every background that's behind her, like she has like a living room set and then she has like the outside of an office. Like, you know, if you came into her clinic and you're in the outside of her office. And of course, every time she's got her white costume on, her robe and her stethoscope over her neck, because that's what the doctor's outfit has to have. And, you know, there's part of me and I know this isn't the right time to do it, but there's just part of me that wants to ridicule anybody who feels like they have to wear a costume to be taken seriously. Like, there's no reason this doctor needs to be in this outfit. She's not actually in the clinic. (laughs) She's at home. (laughs) So, like, she could be wearing anything, right? But she put her little white robe on, and she put her stethoscope over, and she's got her costume on, and she's playing doctor in front of the green screen. And I'm not saying any of this to just diminish what she has to say, just to point out that it's just... It's so transparent and it's so obvious. And I think all of this feeds into this sort of corporate watered down sensation of just delivering you massively condensed information that is just totally generic and doesn't really fit or apply to your life or your area. And so people just start to tune it out. Tragic is how Dr. Eileen Marty, an infectious disease expert, responded to a letter sent out by the Sentner Academy. In the letter, the school in Miami discourages teachers and staff from getting the COVID-19 vaccines or to wait till the end of the school year, and that legal action would be taken if they lied about it. It's egregious towards anyone who wants to protect themselves from this virus who would be employed by them. Just don't tell them. In the letter, the school claims tens of thousands of women worldwide had adverse reproductive issues like miscarriages just by being near someone who was vaccinated. There is nothing infectious in the vaccine whatsoever. And the type of immunity that they induce in no way affects anything to do with anyone's fertility. The school on North Miami Avenue also claimed it spoke with medical leaders about the vaccine and called it experimental. The author has a very... um... Yeah, why don't they have... You know, it's interesting they don't have audio from the actual school. Instead, they have audio from somebody just rebuffing school. And I understand. They got to walk the line. Confidential form, answering whether they got the vaccine, which one, and how many doses. It threatens legal action for lying. 
This is a private school. It's not a public school. So generally, a private employer in Florida can fire someone for any reason or no reason at all. You know, if you're paying $25,000 to go to this school, I, you either be really, you better really be in with what they're saying or you just got scammed. But, you know, like uh, Nefarious says in the Discord, it's clearly the problem is, is that the vaccine contains those five chip, 5G micro-tracking chips. And uh, those are broadcasting your location back to Bill Gates. And when they do that, they're causing pregnant women to have twins. And so that's why the school has to shut it down. But there's all kinds of weirdness right now with vaccines and vaccine hesitancy and removing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and putting it back into play. And then we come to the mess. Unbelievably. Future me, you're not going to believe we're over a year into this and you're not going to believe what's going on with the mask. And it's a it's a it's a super complex problem when you're in the middle of it. And I'm sure where you're going to be at future, Chris, it's going to be like, you know, obvious and stupid. But where I'm at right now, it's remarkable because you have you have this this constant mantra of what you have to do to be safe during the pandemic. And and the information has shifted as time has gone on. And in every single time, it seems like the CDC is always kind of behind with the actual sciences, which I know isn't uncommon. You know, they have to be conservative and careful. But I, I think when you don't talk about problems in 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 their full, clear, true reality, like I was talking about about earlier, about about being just really brutally honest. This is an experimental vaccine. That's how dire the situation is. I feel like that should be and and would have made the whole communication a lot clearer the entire time. And from the very beginning, even when Trump was trying to keep people calm, if we just would have been extremely clear and honest, we don't know this or what we do know this or what we do or do not, and just really stick to it. And things have shifted so much. So now when the CDC comes out or via Biden and says, you can be outside, and if you're vaccinated and you're in a small group, you can take off the mask. It doesn't jive with what we truly know about how this thing seems to spread. When you look at all of the protests over the summer, this, the January 6th riot, it doesn't really seem like outdoor events become super spreader events. In fact, we can't really seem to find any correlation between large outdoor gatherings, even those crazy beach parties that media love to go on about during spring break, and big outbreaks. You can find some here or there. But in reality, you look at like states like states like Texas and Florida and their covid numbers are doing pretty good, even though they've kind of removed the mask mandate all mandate altogether and are essentially back to normal. So it doesn't really jive with the reality of what at least some Americans are living today. So when they come out and say under these circumstances, with these weird amount of curious restrictions, in this case, 10 people or more in these particular kinds of circumstances, and they make it all nuanced and a bit of a, a hairy a hairy dog's tail to kind of go in there and, and figure out what the restrictions are. I think people just find it to be bullshit. And I have to say, after coming on the air for weeks and saying I see people masking like crazy in Washington, what I'm noticing is people mask like crazy in Washington in the residential and downtown areas. Or not the res uh, uh, retail, I should say. Not re it, when you go out to the residential areas and you kind of expand out from the cities, they've stopped. People are getting together. They're hanging out. Uh, I, I, I just I think there's a lot of people that are not living the reality. And so when the Biden administration comes along and says, you can do this thing with all of these caveats and it's not even in sync with what most Americans are, are doing. 
I think all of that can come back and be pinpointed on just not being straight with us from the very beginning about the actual risk, about what they do and do not know. And that's why when I watch this clip from Biden, I don't see this convincing anybody to go get vaccinated. I don't see this convincing people that we're going to try now to keep the mask on for a little bit longer. I just don't buy it. And because of the extraordinary progress we've made in fighting this virus and the progress our scientists have made in learning about how it gets transmitted. Earlier today, the CDC made an important announcement. Starting today, if you're fully vaccinated and you're outdoors, you need, and not in a big crowd, you no longer need to wear a mask. I want to be absolutely clear. If you're in a crowd, like a stadium or at a conference or a concert, you still need to wear a mask, even if you're outside. But beginning today, gathering with a group of friends in a park, going for a picnic, as long as you are vaccinated and outdoors, you can do it without a mask. It seems like a lot of caveats there. And when we talk about the science, I'd like I'd love them to be clear what science indicates that if you've been fully vaccinated, even if you're a group of 5000 and if that is the case, then are the vaccines not as effective as they say they are? Where is the deficiency? And the mask debate is still so hot that even me talking about this is going to piss people off. It'll tune people out. People will never listen to my, any of my content again just for me talking about what I have just spoken of. People will not listen to my Linux content because I, I suggest I, I just am willing to even give airtime to any of this stuff. That's how polarized people are right now. And it almost seems like some people, especially those in the higher echelons of the media, are exploiting this polarization for views. I know. Shocker. How many kids are being hurt by this? That's a question that no one asks and we should all be troubled by a lot. Whoever and anyone, whenever, when they start with think of the children, that's not an accident, right? You don't go on television and write something that goes into a prompter and accidentally start with Think of the Children. A physician called Mary Harrow told the Colorado Springs School Board that, quote, the data are overwhelming on this topic. Mass, the doctor said, can, quote, cause low oxygen and high carbon dioxide levels, shortness of breath, toxicity, inflammation, increased stress hormones and sugar in the body, and create fear, anxiety, headaches, compromised cognitive performance, and other problems. Okay, what mass? What kind of mass? And in what conditions? Was it up in, you know, 9,000 feet up in Colorado? I mean, what were seriously, what were the conditions there? And then while I, I could actually see some of that, especially if you're doing something that is aerobic, uh, the, the thing that always crosses my mind when I hear, like, just the, the concern that they're just that, they're that, they're that bad, is, well, then what about Asia? where they've been wearing masks when they have the flu forever. Are they all dumb? Did they Have they just all done something that's completely worthless and ineffective? And they're all starving themselves of oxygen and increasing their blood sugar and screwing with their stress hormones? All of them? And somehow none of their scientists have figured this out yet? That doesn't seem like that's probably not right. Just like saying that all of a sudden one mask isn't effective and you need to wear two masks is a little like, well, then so why did I have to wear one mask at all? Saying that masks do this is the other side of the coin. That doesn't make any sense either because there's entire populations. There's probably more people that wear masks than not wear masks when you consider the population sizes. So 
that doesn't seem right. I, I wouldn't be surprised that if you are really wearing a mask to the degree where it would stop the spread of COVID, you probably are reducing your airflow. Like if you if you don't know how to wear them properly, like a medical professional does, but you've somehow managed to get it attached to your face enough where you're not sucking in air on the sides, which is what all these masks are doing anyways, completely preventing their usefulness, then you probably do reduce the flow. But then for how long? An hour? 20, 20 minutes? What? And what kind of mask? Like this is this is such a straw man argument here. He clearly could be doing better. But we continue on. Carbon dioxide levels, shortness of breath, toxicity, inflammation, increased stress hormones and sugar in the body, and create fear, anxiety, headaches, compromised cognitive performance, and other problems. Future generations will mock us for this, but we allowed it. We let power drunk politicians wreck the country in exchange for promising to protect us from a virus that 99% of us would have survived anyway. What were we thinking? This grotesque version of Halloween went on for more than a year, and it's still going on. Not even Tony Fauci still pretends that masks are medically necessary. Instead, masks are purely a sign of political obedience, like Kim Il-sung pins in Pyongyang. We wear them because we have to. The only people who wear masks voluntarily outside are zealots and neurotics. Now, I don't know if I necessarily disagree. I mean, I don't know about neurotics, but I uh, if I'm outside... And I'm on the other side of the street and you're on the other side of the street and neither one of us have a mask on. I think there's very low risk. I don't know, but I would love to know the data. And so you do have this weird pressure now, even if you've been vaccinated and you're technically in the clear, people are looking at you weird. Like, what's what's your problem, man? What, you're a Donald Trump voter? You know, why don't you wear a mask? What are you voting for Trump? And you can't talk about the mask. You can't raise questions about the mask. Like I said, I'm going to lose listeners. Because I dared to raise questions about the mask. And it was a shitstorm for 24 hours for Tucker Carlson for daring to talk about the mask. And really, he's talking about outdoor masks. And the thing that really got people upset is Tucker said that if you see little children playing outside with masks, you should call CPS and report abuse. I think he said it in jest. When you listen to the clip, when you go find it on YouTube... <laughs> it doesn't sound like he's serious, but man, did that trigger people. It's a new low even for Tucker Carlson of Fox News, who this week urged his viewers to harass and threaten parents and their children for wearing masks and to use 911 and police to enforce his attempt to criminalize a piece of cloth. He thinks masks are like the pins North Koreans wear to show obedience to their leader. Never mind that he demands obedience from his followers. Encouraging his Tucker mob to find you at the playground, the zoo, or inside a bouncy castle and interrogate you for making a personal choice about how to protect your kids. The thing is, this isn't really about masks, is it, Mr. Microwave Meals Air? Because we know, and Tucker, we think you know, too, that conservatives are just really angry that they've lost control of American society and culture. It's why Fox wants its viewers mad, 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 mad about Dr. Seuss and red meat to the point where the network is just a hub for racial hatred and not even just that anymore, but also for a very dangerous, deeply concerning platform so that committed, so committed to the big lie that its top host is encouraging its viewers to harass strangers and demand that they bear their faces. This is also coming as the anti-vax and COVID denying movements are. Isn't this incredible? Everything she says about Tucker is true about herself. She's clearly trying to rile people up. She's clearly anger. 
She's clearly angry. She's playing the role of thought police. Increasingly impacting kids. Like this anti-mask protest. And she also goes for the kids angle right here. Viewers to harass strangers and demand that they bear their faces. This is also coming as the anti-vax and COVID denying movements are increasingly impacting kids. It's 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 really it really is just absolutely the worst. And of course, the view had I mean, every everybody. The CDC is set to revise some COVID safety guidance hours from now, uh, like saying it's OK to wear your mask indoors, but you don't have to wear necessarily outdoors in some situations. Mm, peak morning television right here in America. But vaccines, vaccinations are the most vital step to ending the pandemic. So some states are trying to entice vaccine holdouts. West Virginia is offering 16 35 year old residents a hundred dollar savings bond to get a shot. Uh, I guess the question is, do incentives move the needle for people? I'm curious to know what you think about that places and states trying to experiment with uh, paying people to get the shot. Of course, yeah, they cut it off at 35. <laughs> what, I don't like 100 bucks? Make it 500 bucks and uh, raise that age limit. Maybe you got yourself a deal. Joe Rogan dared, dared, dared to question if young people should get vaccinated. I want to play you something that Joe Rogan said to his millions of listeners. This is always great, too. When the mainstream media, especially a long timer like uh, Lion Brian Williams here, when they when they criticize new media and they cite the numbers, you can hear the envy in their voice. Like this bastard, he's talking directly. He doesn't have to go through the corporate machine that has cut me down. Uh, and then listen to this political jackass. He jumps in with such a bias and such a slant, and then criticizes everybody for doing the same. It's it's brilliant, and I'll just play you a bit of the hypocrisy. I want to play you something that Joe Rogan said to his millions of listeners. It's important for that reason. We'll discuss on the other side. If you're like 21 years old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I, I go, no. If you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young. The lower third, by the way, lower third on MSNBC here says, quote, Popular podcasters suggest healthy young people don't need COVID vaccine. Is that just outrageous? And you're eating well. And like, I don't think you need to worry about this. Now, of course, because we're all about the science when somebody talks about the vaccine, we're going to respond with a very scientific analysis. Right, special MSNBC guest? So, uh, doctor, oh with all due respect to the noted public health expert, Joe Rogan, and for that matter, Tucker Carlson, who this week is equating uh, putting masks on children with child abuse. Uh, what do all the folks on the sidelines who aren't physicians, who aren't in the business of public health, what do they need to know about those comments? Yeah, doctor, give us a nice medical scientific answer. Well, those comments were unleashed by a president who left some very, very malignant leg legacies. Uh, Brian, you know, obviously. What? A Trump? I do whine because I want to win. The, uh, inciting people to the insurrection that we saw on January 6th was a major uh, problem. Oh, man, they're just the worst. They are absolutely the worst. Um, now, listen, it's it's just about Joe Biden lifetime. Like I said, we're going to we're going to switch over to live commentary. So I'm trying to get all of the really relevant stuff out. So that way, if you want to tune out, you can. 
And uh, to do so, we need to enter into Joe Biden, the grandfather archives. Come on, man. We choose truth over facts. I'm going to give you the whole load today. You know the you know the thing. Let my wife come home. So, you know, let her come home, okay? You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. This is this is about what we can do together. Remember that bombshell about the Russians putting bounties on the heads of U.S. troops in Afghanistan and the awful orange president that do any, didn't do anything about it? Yeah, that to, to say nothing of, t- of putting bounties on, on American troops. Um, it's unbelievable, Joy. Yeah. I mean, he has still yet to say anything. He's still suggesting that the reporting about the fact that there were these bounties offered is fake. Not only does the president know that Russia was paying for American soldiers' deaths, paying rewards for Americans dead. The president knows it. He's been told. Not only has he failed to sanction or impose any kind of consequences on Russia for this egregious violation of international law. Donald Trump had talked at least six times to Vladimir Putin and never brought up the subject. Joe Biden would never do that. Well, today we learned that that story wasn't really true, courtesy of President Biden's own intel community. Here now to discuss is Johnny Joey. We don't need to discuss. That's it. Yeah. Now, because Biden has announced that they're going to do the wind down and withdrawal by September, they have updated the story to say, yeah, no, that story about the Afghan stuff, uh, we were actually pretty unsure about that. But, you know, if you if you go back to during the election and you see how the Biden campaign used that moment that supposedly Russians were paying for hit jobs on on U.S. troops in Afghanistan, the way Joe Biden doubled down and you could tell the way he couch it too. two things are really revealing. I'm going to play a little bit. I'll go back. We're going to go back in time. Going to go back in time. Anyways, we're going to go back in time here in a moment. But when you watch this clip, I want you to pay attention to how he kind of couches it. He clearly, clearly knows this story isn't true. But how? But since he knows it isn't true, he can make all of these declarations and he comes across like a paper tiger. I'd like to start today by briefly addressing what I consider to be a horrifying revelation in the New York Times last night. Assuming the Times report is accurate, the U.S. intelligence, they report the U.S. intelligence community has has assessed that a Russian military intelligence unit, the same unit that was behind the assassination of the former KGB agent in London five years ago, has been offering bounties to extremist groups in Afghanistan to kill U.S. troops. There is no bottom to the depth of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin's depravity, if that's true. It's truly shocking revelation that if the Times report is true, I emphasize again, is that President Trump, the commander-in-chief of American troops serving in a dangerous theater of war, has known about this for months, according to the Times, and done worse than nothing. Not only has he failed to sanction or impose any kind of consequences on Russia for this egregious violation of international law, Donald Trump has continued his embarrassing campaign of deference and debasing himself before Vladimir Putin. 
He had had this information, according to the Times, and yet he offered to host Putin in the United States and sought to invite Russia to rejoin the G7. He's in, his entire presidency has been a gift to Putin. But it, this is beyond the pale. It's a betrayal of the most sacred duty we bear as a nation to protect and equip our troops when we send them in the harm's way. And it's betrayed. It's a betrayal of every single American family with a loved one serving in Afghanistan or anywhere overseas. And I'm quite frankly outraged by the report. And if I'm elected president, make no mistake about it, Vladimir Putin will be confronted and will impose serious costs on Russia. Right. But I don't just think about this as a candidate for president. I think about this as a dad, a father, who sent his son to serve in harm's way for a year. So he plays the family angle. He makes commitments about all he'll do as president to fight back against Putin. But then it turns out, of course, that they just dismiss the report and say nothing really happened. Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty disappointed. And I'm watching the CNN feeds right now. It looks like uh, the speaker and the vice president have taken their seats and people are talking. So we're going to break over to that pretty soon. But there was a great back and forth. Well, we could talk about what we actually maybe I'll play this clip. I'll jump in. There was a great back and forth uh, with uh, the press secretary. But since we are about to get to the main event, here's what we expect. Intro. Hello, everyone. I'm Tanya Rivero. Welcome back to CBSN. Tonight, President Biden will address the nation and Congress to America mark hype. his first 100 days in office. A key component of his speech will be to unveil his American Families Plan. The $1.8 trillion proposal will expand access to social programs for millions of Americans, including child care and paid family leave. It will also push for tuition-free community college and pre-kindergarten, as well as provide tax credits to help fight child poverty. The president will suggest paying for his initiatives by raising the capital gains tax on Americans earning more than $1 million a year. A capital gains tax is a tax on the sale of large assets like stocks, real estate, and investments. The capital gains tax rate will increase from 20%, where it is currently, to 39.6%, again, for just the wealthiest Americans making over $1 million a year. The plan will will also boost IRS funding to enforce tax compliance for high earners. I want to bring in Joel Payne and Matt Gorman now. That's one of the big interesting claims here is that, well, just by increasing the enforcement of the IRS, if you spend a dollar on the IRS, you'll make $7 back. So uh, just increase enforcement and it'll pay for itself. <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, when I hear that, it always reminds me of Bush saying the Iraq war would pay for itself. Uh, it just never seems like when government officials say it'll pay for itself, it works out. It seems like if you increase the IRS's size and uh, give the IRS more power in funding, it'll never go away. And that'll be a burden on the rest of my life because they're already a pain in my damn ass. And I'm just some basic broke podcaster in north of Seattle. <laughs> so can you imagine? I don't, I don't even know. While I wait for Biden to show up, his first address to the joint session of Congress since he's become president, uh, which I think is I think it's about to happen now. We'll sign off our official Biden segment one more time with our new grandfather clip. Come on, man. 
We choose truth over facts. I'm going to give you the whole load today. Sorry, go ahead, David. No, I was just saying you know that, you know, he, know he, he, he speaks the language of compromise, of the language of unity, and so, so it makes it harder for the Republicans, and, and it is so, very, you know, after Trump, home, okay? that is a huge relief to the American people, and that's why I don't this is this is about what we can do together. Second gentleman, uh, Douglas Emhoff, is being escorted into the executive gallery. Yeah, well, I mean, look, that that's history right there. You know, the uh, the second second gentleman. And Boy, I, they're I all, they're say, really really excited about this. This this is this address to Congress is getting more hype than a typical State of the Union does, which this is not a State of the Union here. But this is a this is a different kind of event. It's much more spread out. Like all of the things around the Biden administration, this one's a little more low key, and uh, there's a lot less people there. There's not going to be the typical like handshaking and clapping and saying hello to everybody. Uh, Cam Cam and the first hubby are being cute with each other right now. It's so adorable. <clears throat> not so much. So we're right now we're going to listen to CNN's live coverage, and I'll do commentary throughout this. Sparingly, uh, I don't really plan to talk over people much, but uh, I'll chime in when I need to. First came to the Senate 48 years ago. Let's listen in. Madam Speaker, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And, and normally, all, if, and most, if not all, of the uh, justices, nine justices, would be there, but uh, because of the COVID pandemic. Just the chief justice will be there tonight. The chief representing the high court tonight. Uh, to the point, Joe Biden was elected to the Senate 48 years ago. He first ran for president 34 years ago. People think of him as an old school politician. Uh, this is a very ambitious pro-government agenda he will outline tonight. And he is banking on the fact that he believes in the first 100 days he has proven. I told you I was going to turn around the vaccine rollout in the COVID fight. I did it. The United States was a laughingstock in the COVID fight under Trump. It is the envy of the world now in the vaccination rollout. He's going to say it is the government that helped get the economy back on its feet. Trust me as I try to do more. It's a tougher sell now. We're heading toward the midterm election year. But he is on very good ground here as he tries to, again, defy Washington conventional wisdom and say, I can sell this very ambitious plan to a country that he believes is we shall see the government. Than I think they were open to spending when it was to save us from Corona. I think when it comes to other spending, they're not as they're not as open. I'm going to continue to monitor that. Uh, but while they talk about that, I did have a quick high note that I thought I'd cover. Mommy needs a joint. Uh, and so once an industry gets popular and there begins the the uh, organizing of the workforce, you know what comes after that. In the Metro, we say it is time to unionize. Good evening to all of you. Thank you for being with us tonight. I'm Ann Allred. And I'm Mike Bush. They're fighting for better working conditions, more job opportunities, and a commitment to improve local communities. As our Michelle Lee reports, it's an emerging trend in an industry struggling for legitimacy. I love it because what they're about to do is uh, make the case that they have really great jobs and that the company's really great, uh, but they just like to be unionized. I absolutely love my job. Uh, this is some, uh, an industry that I've been working to get into for well over a decade now. People like, like Ian love the work, they love the customers, and they love the product. And, and they also like the, the, the company, believe it or not. But they want to make sure that the standards improve. At the end of the day, though, it's still work. That's why more cannabis workers are fighting for better conditions. So there is uh, definitely a, a movement going on 
in in the state of Illinois with cannabis workers to unionize. Why is there such a trend to unionize? There's really not any stability, no matter where you look at the industry. And there's really no equity, whether it be for the workers or for the people and communities that have been disenfranchised by the laws up until this point. So. I, I could see it to a bit to the people that have been disenfranchised by the laws. But then if you want equity, I guess the small business entrepreneur to me is like, just go start a business. Just because somebody else made a business and it's successful doesn't mean you necessarily deserve a piece. And I think in part there's a middle ground here. It's some people have been disenfranchised. Uh, because of laws, and they've been locked up for something that's now legal, and that screwed up their entire employment career history. But there's the other angle of there's a lot of money being made right now. And during the pandemic, businesses shut down, and one of the few businesses that was allowed to stay open and flourished was cannabis. Everyone's had their challenges this past year, but San Francisco saw some resilience in one industry in particular. Although some of their businesses closed, the cannabis industry actually did see growth during the pandemic. Eleven new pot shops opened and hired employees when they needed a job most. From one street to the next, closed signs are hanging up in too many San Francisco storefronts to count. Oh, it's so tragic. And, you know, we, we, we just really, we haven't even begun to felt the repercussions of this one yet. The cost of staying open during a shelter in place proved too much to bear. While the hospitality industry was decimated, there was one hybrid industry that actually saw some growth in 2020, cannabis. Used for both medicinal and recreational purposes, pot was deemed essential by the mayor. Not all of them made it through, but more than 70 existing marijuana-related businesses stayed open, and nearly a dozen new owners took a shot at opening up pod shops, so it can be said the bud business is blooming. Despite not having received PPP loans, because the federal government still classifies marijuana as a Schedule One drug, with local government support, permits were fast-tracked for new opportunities. So the owners of Steezy and Union Square are actually one of 11 equity applicants who have approved during the pandemic. Let's head inside and say hello. Steezy CEO Cindy De La Vega grew up in San Francisco's Sunnydale neighborhood where she went through tough times. So despite the pandemic, she didn't shy away from an opportunity that came her way to become the city's first Latina to open a dispensary. But I kept going and look at, you know, look, I opened it. And so my thing is just continue to educate yourselves. Um, you know, I feel like where I come from, we cut ourselves short a lot. And being a minority, you know, we weren't as privileged as others. So the the thing here is that we need to educate ourselves and use it, use that time. You know, don't think that, oh, a little setback, but it'll be, it's, it's going to be a major comeback. City leaders have prioritized pioneers like her through the equity program to help them get into the business. And in turn, Steezy and other bud businesses across San Francisco have hired 31 employees through the first source. All right, so let's check in on Joe here. Some people smoke crack. Some people snort coke. Looks like he's about to be introduced. Off of Ricky's ball sack. He requested this song. I've tried them all. That's what he said. Don't get me wrong. The best high there is comes from a bomb. I like smoking pot a lot. I like getting stoned along. Curly hair, rubbing 
Excited to see each other. Uh, there's the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, and Liz Cheney, who has been feuding with him uh, because he has been telling lies about the election. Uh, and the continued pageantry of the night still going on, even though they are masked, even though their numbers are limited. I'm surprised there's not most, more uh, social distancing. I mean, they're touching each other. They're walking right up to each other. There's handshaking and fist bumping. They're in each other's space. I mean, when they get to their chairs, they're separated. But the whole reason that they had to have uh, less people in there was because they needed to have the space. And yet they're all coming down the hall together. They're all going through the doorway together. They're standing in a line that's like back to back. How bizarre. Like it, it's clearly performative. Senator Bernie Sanders and others. People happy to see each other. There's not a lot of interaction on Capitol Hill uh, these days, given given COVID. Amy Klobuchar. There's the House. I'm sorry, the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Minority Leader. Their roles switched. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic Majority Leader, and there's Mitch McConnell, the Republican Minority Leader. It kind of has the feel of a like a football game entrance where people are no. just bumping each other on their way in. Um, it is actually interesting to see this much levity in this chamber. I mean, we've been talking about. I wonder if we're going to see them start late. Uh, I mean, actually, I guess suppose I guess he's already two minutes late. He's nearly three minutes late. So uh, will uh, will Joe show up late? I guess that is yes. So if you had that on your bingo card, cross that off. It, it, then really, we we don't really know what to expect. It's kind of late where he's at. It's 9 p.m. Uh, so is he going to be juiced up, ready to go? That's what I'm watching for. I'm watching to see the quality of his speech. But I'm also expecting in this um, boring radical radicalism, like sort of, are you familiar with the boring dystopia subreddit? It's like that, only it's boring radicalism. It's going to be proposals with numbers attached to them that would have been laughable 10 years ago. But now we've been so fried by all of the money spending in the last several presidencies that we can't even wrap our heads around the the trillions that we're spending now. And I think watching how he rolls that out, how he couches it and then just describes it to the American people is going to probably be the primary thing that I'm watching for in this talk. Because what I expect is that the American family plan to essentially be probably his Obamacare. I would I would expect because when it's when it's when it's just unbridled spending on COVID-19, it would seem that the American people have uh, have a plenty of appetite for spending beyond our means. No expense is too much. We must spend our way out of this. But then when it comes to things like child care and roads, when we're just one step away from absolute utter destruction, then then you start to see people say, well, what about all the money? Here's Joe. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. Obama used to fist bump because he was the cool president. Now we fist bump because of the pandemic. But I, 
I mean, it doesn't really feel like you're you're kind of not really following the spirit of social distancing if you're within right reach of each other. Biden taking his applause for a moment. Everybody wants to fist bump, but he wants to elbow bump. Almost 80 years in the making. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. elected to the U.S. Senate from Delaware in 1972. His third attempt running for president was victorious. And he exceeded many expectations. And now he's going to try to exceed some more with his incredibly ambitious, some would say aggressive, policy proposals that will be about $6 trillion in spending to reshape the American economy and social safety nets and infrastructure investments in this country. He is giving copies of his speech to the first woman speaker and the first woman vice president. I have the high privilege and distinct honor to present to you the president of the United States. This is one of his real duties here. That's where it gets real, everybody. The mask is coming off. It's Joe time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good to be back. Mitch and Chuck will understand it's good to be almost home. Down the hall. (laughs) Anyway, thank you all. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. Which one are you, he says? Oh, yeah, there you are. First Lady, and her husband. Second Gentleman, Chief Justice. Members of the United States Congress and the Cabinet, distinguished guests, my fellow Americans. While the uh, setting tonight is familiar, this gathering is just a little bit different. Reminder of the extraordinary times we're in. Throughout our history, presidents have come to this chamber to speak to Congress, to the nation, and to the world, to declare war, to celebrate peace, to announce new plans and possibilities. Tonight, I come to talk about crisis and opportunity, about rebuilding the nation, revitalizing our democracy, and winning the future for America. I stand here tonight, one day shy of the 100th day of my administration, 100 days since I took the oath of office and lifted my hand off our family Bible and inherited a nation we all did that was in crisis, the worst pandemic in a century, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation 
America is on the move again. Peril into possibility, crisis to opportunity, setbacks into strength. We all know life can knock us down, but in America, we never, ever, ever stay down. Americans always get up. Today, that's what we're doing. America's rising anew, choosing hope over fear, truth over lies, and light over darkness. After 100 days of rescue and renewal, America is ready for a takeoff, in my view. We're working again, dreaming again, discovering again, and leading the world again. We have shown each other and the world that there's no quit in America, none. 100 days ago, America's house was on fire. We had to act. And thanks to the extraordinary leadership of Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Schumer, and the overwhelming support of the American people, Democrats, Independents, and Republicans, we did act. Together, we passed the American Rescue Plan, one of the most consequential rescue packages in American history. We're already seeing the results. We're already seeing the results. After I promised we'd get 100 million COVID-19 vaccine shots into people's arms in 100 days, we will have provided over 220 million COVID shots in those 100 days. Thanks to all the help of all of you. We're marshalling with your help everyone's help. We're marshalling every federal resource. We've gotten vaccines to nearly 40,000 pharmacies and over 700 community health centers where the poorest of the poor can be reached. We're setting up community vaccination sites, developing mobile units to get to hard-to-reach communities. Today, 90% of Americans now live within five miles of a vaccination site. Everyone over the age of 16, everyone is now eligible to get vaccinated right now, right away. Go get vaccinated, America. Go and get the vaccination. They're available. Eligible now. Doing the greatest hits right off the top here. When I was sworn in on January 20th, less than 1% of the seniors in America are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. 100 days later, 70% of seniors in America, over 65, are protected, fully protected. Senior deaths from COVID-19 are down 80% since January. Down 80% because of all of you. And more than half of all the adults in America have gotten at least one shot. A mass vaccination center in Glendale, Arizona. I asked the nurse, I said, what's it like? She looked at me and she said, it's like every shot is giving a dose of hope. Is her phrase, a dose of hope. A dose of hope for an educator in Florida 
was a child suffering from an autoimmune disease, wrote to me, said she's worried and she was worried about bringing the virus home. She said she then got vaccinated at a, at a large site in her car. She said she sat in her car when she got vaccinated and just cried, cried out of joy and cried out of relief. Parents, seeing the smiles on their kids' faces for those who are able to go back to school because the teachers and school bus drivers and cafeteria workers have been vaccinated. Grandparents, hugging their children and grandchildren instead of pressing hands against the window to say goodbye. It means everything. Those things mean everything. You know, there's still, you all know it, you know it better than any group of Americans. There's still more work to do to beat this virus. We can't let our guard down. But tonight, I can say, t- because of you, the American people, our progress these past hundred days against one of the worst pandemics in history has been one of the greatest logistical achievements, logistical achievements this country's ever seen. What else have we done in those first 100 days? We kept our commitment, Democrats and Republicans, of sending $1,400 rescue checks to 85% of American households. We already sent more than 160 million checks out the door. It's making a difference. You all know it when you go home. For many people, it's making all the difference in the world. Nancy Pelosi trying to fix the audio problem. A single there. mom in Texas who wrote me. They have an open mic. She said she couldn't work. But she said the relief check put food on the table and saved her and her son from eviction from their apartment. It's like somebody had messaged Nancy Pelosi to stand up and move that mic out of there because it was picking up. I don't know. It's still, you can still hear it's picking up room noise. Granddaughter to the eye doctor. You hear the feedback? Something she said she put off for months because she didn't have the money. One of the defining images, at least from my perspective in this crisis, has been cars lined up. Cars lined up for miles. And not, not people just barely able to start those cars. Nice cars. Lined up for miles. Waiting for a box of food to be put in their trunk. I don't know about you, but I didn't ever think I'd see that in America. And all of this is through no fault of their own. No fault of their own, these people are in this position. That's why the rescue plan is delivering food and nutrition assistance to millions of Americans facing hunger. And hunger's down sharply already. We're also providing rental assistance. You all know this, but the American people, I want to make sure they understand. Keeping people from being evicted from their homes. Providing loans to small businesses that reopen and keep their employees on the job. During these 100 days, an additional 800,000 Americans enrolled in the Affordable Care Act when I established a special sign-up period to do that. 800,000 in that period. We're making one of the largest one-time ever investments, ever, in improving health care for veterans. Critical investments to address the opioid crisis. And maybe most importantly, thanks to the American Rescue Plan, we're on track to cut child poverty in America in half this year. 
And in the process, while this was all going on, the economy created more than 1,300,000 new jobs in 100 days. More jobs in the first... That sort of happens when you lose a bunch of jobs. More jobs in the first 100 days than any president on record. The International Monetary Fund... The International Monetary Fund is now estimating our economy will grow at a rate of more than 6% this year. That will be the fastest pace of economic growth in this country in nearly four decades. America's moving, moving forward, but we can't stop now. We're in competition with China and other countries to win the 21st century. We're at a great inflection point in history. We have to do more than just build back better. To build back, we have to build back better. We have to compete more strenuously than we have. Throughout our history, if you think about it, public investment in infrastructure has literally transformed America, our attitudes as well as our opportunities. Just learn a bit there, too. The Transcontinental Railroad, interstate highways. Build back better, United I Two oceans and brought a totally new age of progress to the United States of America. Universal public schools and college aid opened wide the doors of opportunity. Scientific breakthroughs took us to the moon. Now we're on Mars discovering vaccines, gave us the internet, and so much more. These are investments we made together as one country. We found vaccines and internet on Mars? Investments that only the government was in a position to make. Time and again, they propel us into the future. Uh, this is the That's pitch. That's why I proposed the American Jobs Plan. Yeah, this is the pitch. A once-in-a-generation investment in America itself. This is the largest jobs plan since World War II. Creates jobs to upgrade our transportation infrastructure. Like only government can. Jobs modernizing our roads, bridges, highways. Jobs building ports and airports, rail corridors, transit lines. It's clean water. And today, up to 10 million homes in America and more than 400,000 schools and childcare centers have pipes with lead in them, including drinking water. A clear and present danger to our children's health. American Jobs Plan creates jobs replacing 100% of the nation's lead pipes and service lines. So every American can drink clean water. And the process will create thousands and thousands of good-paying jobs. It creates jobs connecting every American with high-speed internet, including 35% of the rural America that still doesn't have it. This is going to help our kids and our businesses succeed in the 21st century economy. And I'm asking the vice president to lead this effort, if she would. Because I know it'll get done. <laughs> Creates jobs building a modern power grid. Our grids are vulnerable to storms, hacks, catastrophic failures, with tight, tragic results, as we saw in Texas and elsewhere during the winter storms. 
The American Jobs Plan will create jobs that lay thousands of miles of transmission lines needed to build a resilient and fully clean grid. We can do that. Look. Camel get another big job. American Jobs Plan will help millions of people get back to their jobs and back to their careers. Two million women have dropped out of the workforce during this pandemic. Two million. And too often because they couldn't get the care they needed to care for their child or care for an elderly parent who needs help. 800,000 families are on the Medicare waiting list right now to get home care for their aging parent or loved one with disability. If you think it's not important, check out in your own district, Democrat or Republican, Democrat or Republican voters, their great concern, almost as much as their children, is taking care of an elderly loved one who can't be left alone. Medicaid contemplated it, but this plan is going to help those families and create jobs for our caregivers with better wages and better benefits, continuing a cycle of growth. For too long, we've failed to use the most important word when it comes to meeting the climate crisis. Jobs. 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 Climate is an opportunity. For me, when I think climate change, I think jobs. American Jobs Plan will put engineers and construction workers to work building more energy efficient buildings and homes. Electrical workers, IBEW members installing 500,000 charging stations along our highways so we can own. That's already happening. So we and can buildings and homes are getting pretty damn efficient already. How much more efficiency is Farmers. there to gain? Farmers planting cover crops so they can reduce the carbon dioxide in the air and get paid for doing it. Look, think about it. There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. No reason. None. Well, there's a couple. No reason. Well, yeah, cost. There's, there's like a big reason. So, folks, there's no reason why American, Let's be honest. American workers can't lead the world in the production of electric vehicles and batteries. Well, cost. I mean, there is no reason. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, there is. It's cost. It's government regulations and cost. We're the brightest, best-trained people in the world. What's he talking about, no reason? The American Jobs Plan is going to create millions of good-paying jobs, jobs Americans can raise a family on, as my dad would then say, with a little breathing room. And all the investments in the American Jobs Plan will be guided by one principle. Buy American. Buy American. And I might note parenthetically, that does, not, that does not violate any trade agreement. It's been the law since the 30s, buy American. American tax dollars are going to be used to buy American products made in America to create American jobs. That's the way it's supposed to be, and it will be in this administration. 
if it's been lost since the 30s, what's new? What am I missing? And we I just don't do it. clear to all my cabinet people, their ability to give exemptions has been strenuously limited. It will be American products. Now, I know some of you at home are wondering whether these jobs are for you. So many of you, so many of the folks I grew up with feel left behind, forgotten, in an economy that's so rapidly changing. Well, they're probably dead. Right. I hate to say it. They're probably dead, Joe. I want to speak directly to you because you think about it. That's what people are most worried about. Can I fit in? Independent experts estimate the American jobs plan will add millions of jobs and trillions of dollars to economic growth in the years to come. It is a it is a eight year program. These are good paying jobs that can't be outsourced. Nearly 90 percent of the infrastructure jobs created in the American jobs plan do not require a college degree. 75% don't require an associate's degree. The American Jobs Plan is a blue-collar blueprint to build America. That's what it is. And it recognizes something I've always said in this chamber and the other. Good guys and women on Wall Street, but Wall Street didn't build this country. The middle class built the country, and unions built the middle class. So that's why I'm calling on Congress to pass Protect the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, and send it to my desk so we can support the right to unionize. Really selling this thing on jobs. By the way, while you're thinking about sending things to my desk, <laughs> Let's raise the minimum wage to $15. No one, no one working 40 hours a week, no one working 40 hours a week should live below the poverty line. Romney falling asleep. We need to ensure greater equity and opportunity for women. And while we're doing this, let's get the Paycheck Fairness Act to my desk as well. Equal pay. They spent much too long. And if you wonder whether it's too long, look behind me. Doesn't those, don't those two ladies suggest it actually hasn't been too long? Jobs plan will be the biggest increase in non-defense research and development on record. We'll see more technological change. And some of you know more about this than I do. We'll see more technological change in the next 10 years than we saw in the last 50. That's how rapidly... Artificial intelligence. Oh, boy. And so much more is changing. And we're falling behind the competition with the rest of the world. Decades ago, we used to invest 2% of our gross domestic product in America. 2% of our gross domestic product in research and development. Today, Mr. Secretary, that's less than 1%. China and other countries are closing in fast. China getting some name drops. We have to develop and dominate the products and technologies of the future. Advanced batteries, biotechnology, computer chips, clean energy. The Secretary of Defense can tell you, and those of you on 
work on national security issues now. The D Defense Department has an agency called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. The people who set up before I came here, and that's been a long time ago, to develop breakthroughs that enhance our national security. That's their only job. And it's a semi-separate agency. It's under the Defense Department. It's led to everything from the discovery of the Internet to GPS and so much more that's enhanced our security. The National Institute of Health, the NIH, I believe, should create a similar advanced research projects agency for health. Yikes. They research that weapons. What do do. Okay, what? It would have a singular purpose to develop breakthroughs to prevent, detect, and treat diseases like Alzheimer's, diabetes, and cancer. I'll still never forget when we passed the cancer proposal in the last year as vice president. Almost $9 million going to NIH. They've excused the point of personal privilege. I'll never forget you standing, Mitch, and saying, name it after my deceased son. It meant a lot. But so many of us have deceased sons, daughters, and relatives died of cancer. Weird that he's mentioning a family loss. I can think of no more worthy investment. That never happens. I know of nothing that is more bipartisan. So let's end cancer as we know it. It's within our power. It's no reason our not power to. power to do it. No reason. No reason. Investments in jobs and infrastructure like the ones we're talking about have often had bipartisan support in the past. Vice President Harris and I met regularly in the Oval Office with Democrats and Republicans and discussed the jobs plan. And I applaud a group of Republican senators who just put forward their own proposal. So let's get to work. I wanted to lay out before the Congress my plan before we got into the deep discussions. I'd like to meet with those who have ideas that are different, they think are better. I welcome those ideas. But the rest of the world is not waiting for us. I just want to be clear. From my perspective, doing nothing is not an option. Look, we can't be so busy competing with one another that we forget the competition that we have with the rest of the world to win the 21st century. Secretary Blinken can tell you, I spent a lot of time with President Xi. Traveled over 17,000 miles with him. Spent, they tell me, over 24 hours in private discussions with him. When he called to congratulate him, we had a two-hour discussion. He's deadly earnest about becoming the most significant consequential nation in the world. He and others autocrats, think that democracy can't compete in the 21st century with autocracies because it takes too long to get consensus. 
To win that competition for the future, in my view, we also need to make a once-in-a-generation investment in our families and our children. That's why I've introduced the American Families Plan tonight, which addresses four of the biggest challenges facing American families and in turn America. First is access to good education. When this nation made 12 years of public education universal in the last century, it made us the best educated, best prepared nation in the world. It's, I believe, the overwhelming reason that propelled us to where we got in the 21st, in the 20th century. But the world's caught up or catching up. So he's doing a series of pitches. Only government can solve these problems. The money's worth it. And now it is, in order to stay competitive, we have to spend this money on the American family plan. What we do in terms of government providing for free education. I wonder whether we'd think, as we did in the 20th century, that 12 years is enough in the 21st century. I doubt it. 12 years is no longer enough today to compete with the rest of the world in the 21st century. That's why my American Families Plan guarantees four additional years of public education for every person in America, starting as early as we can. The great universities in this country have conducted studies of the last 10 years. It shows that adding two years of universal high-quality preschool for every three-year-old and four-year-old, no matter what background they come from, puts them in a position to be able to compete all the way through 12 years and increases exponentially their prospect of graduating and going on beyond graduation. Research shows when a young child goes to school, not daycare, they're far more likely to graduate from high school and go to college or something after high school. When you add two years of free community college on top of that, you begin to change the dynamic. We can do that. Time for claps. Somebody turn the applause sign on. And we'll increase Pell Grants and invest in historical black colleges and universities, tribal colleges, minority-serving institutions. The reason is they don't have the endowments. But their students are just as capable of learning about cybersecurity, just as capable of learning about metallurgy, all the things that are going on that provide those jobs of the future. Learn to code, bro. Jill is a community college professor who teaches today as first lady. She's long said. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody loves Jill. She's long. Oh, a standing O. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Joe, any country that out-educates us is going to out-compete us. She'll be deeply involved in leading this effort. Thank you, Joe. Debbie Wasserman Schultz Second is thing we need. American Families Plan will provide access to quality, affordable child care. We guarantee... When I'm proposing the legislation, we guarantee 
that low- and middle-income families will pay no more than 7 percent of their income for high-quality care for children up to the age of five. The most hard-pressed working families won't have to spend a dime. Third, the American Families Plan will finally provide up to 12 weeks of paid leave and medical leave, family medical leave. We're one of the few industrial countries in the world. No one should have to choose between a job and a paycheck or taking care of themselves and their loved ones or parent or spouse or child. And fourth, the American Family Plan puts directly into the pockets of millions of Americans. In March, we expanded tax credit for every child in a family up to $3,000 per child if they're under six years of age. I mean, excuse me, under, over six years of age. And $3,600 for children over six years of age. With two parents, two kids, that's $7,200 in the pockets. They're going to help take care of your family. And that will help more than 65 million children and help cut child care poverty in half. And we can afford it. No reason not to. No reason. So we did that in the, in the, in the last piece of legislation we passed. But let's extend that child care tax credit at least through the end of 2025. <laughs> the American Rescue Plan lowered health care premiums for 9 million Americans who buy their coverage under the Affordable Care Act. I know that's really popular this side of the aisle. But let's make that provision permanent so their premiums don't go back up. Nancy's clapping hard for that one. I think she's got a mic on back there. I think we can hear Nancy pretty, pretty clearly. In addition to my family's plan, I'm going to work with Congress to address this year other critical priorities for American families. The Affordable Care Act has been a lifeline for millions of Americans, protecting people with pre-existing conditions, protecting women's health. And the pandemic has demonstrated how badly, how badly it's needed. Let's lower deductibles for working families on the Affordable Care and Affordable Care Act. And let's lower prescription drug costs. Nancy well, got the timing wrong on that one. The last president had that as an objective. We all know how outrageously expensive drugs are in America. In fact, we pay the highest prescription drug prices of anywhere in the world, right here in America. Nearly three times for the same drug, nearly three times what other countries pay. We have to change that, and we can. Let's do what we talked about for all the years I was down here in this, in this body. In Congress. Boy, we hear this Let's all the time. Let's give Medicare the power to save hundreds of billions of dollars by negotiating lower drug prescription prices. And by the way, it won't just, it won't just help people on Medicare. Lower prescription drug costs for everyone. And the money we save, which is billions of dollars, can go to strengthen the Affordable Care Act and expand Medicare coverage benefits without costing taxpayers an additional penny. 
It's within our power to do it. Let's do it now. No reason not to. No reason. We've talked about it long enough. Democrats and Republicans, let's get it done this year. This is all about a simple premise. Health care should be a right, not a privilege in America. So, how do we pay for my jobs and family plan? I made it clear we can do it without increasing the deficits. Let's start with what I will not do. I will not impose any tax increase on people making less than $400,000. But it's time for corporate America. And the wealthiest 1% of Americans have just begun to pay their fair share. Just their fair share. Yeah, there's Debbie again. Another shot of Debbie. Sometimes I have arguments with my friends in the Democratic Party. I think you should be able to become a billionaire and a millionaire, but pay your fair share. Recent study shows that 55 of the nation's biggest corporations paid zero federal tax last year. Those 55 corporations made in excess of $40 billion in profit. A lot of companies also evade taxes through tax havens in Switzerland and Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. And they benefit from tax loopholes and deductions for offshoring jobs and shifting profits overseas. It's not right. We're going to reform corporate taxes so they pay their fair share and help pay for the public investments their businesses will benefit from as well. We're going to reward work, not just wealth. We take the top tax bracket for the wealthiest 1% of Americans, those making over $400,000 or more, back up to where it was when George W. Bush was president, when he started, 39.6%. That's where it was when George W. was president. We're going to get rid of the loopholes, allow Americans to make more than a million dollars a year and pay a lower tax rate on their capital gains than Americans who receive a paycheck. We're only going to affect three-tenths of one percent of all Americans by that action. Three-tenths of one percent. And the IRS is going to crack down on millionaires and billionaires who cheat on their taxes. It's estimated to be billions of dollars by think tanks are left, right, and center. I'm not looking to punish anybody. But I will not add a tax burden, additional tax burden, to the middle class in this country. They're already paying enough. I believe what I propose is fair, fiscally responsible, and it raises revenue to pay for the plans I propose and will create millions of jobs that will grow the economy and enhance our financial standing in the country. When you hear someone say, They don't want to raise taxes on the wealthiest 1% or corporate America. Ask them, whose taxes you want to raise? Instead, who's they going to cut? 
Yeah, as Joey Bites points out in the Discord, they're just using legal laws. They're not breaking any law right now. And I don't see how these corporate-controlled corporatists are going to raise taxes on their masters. just doesn't seem like it's ever happened. Instead, it added $2 trillion to the deficit. It was a huge windfall for corporate America and those at the very top. Instead of using the tax saving to raise wages and invest in research and development, it poured billions of dollars into the pockets of CEOs. In fact, the pay gap between CEOs and their workers is now among the largest in history. According to one study, CEOs make 320 times what the average worker in their corporation makes. He says Used to, to a be room. In a, below 100. He says to a room of rich people. The pandemic has only made things worse. 20 million Americans lost their job in the pandemic, working in middle-class Americans. At the same time, roughly 650 billionaires in America saw their net worth increase by more than $1 trillion in the same exact period. Let me say it again. 650 people increased their wealth by more than $1 trillion during this pandemic. I am glad to hear the president of the United States give lip service to this issue. My fellow Americans, trickle down. Trickle down economics has never worked. And it's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. I would love to see it happen to some degree uh, because they're going to spend either way. They have to pay for it somehow. I don't know how they do it. Maybe getting Apple to pay pay in Amazon. Maybe that is part part of it. There's a broad consensus of economists left, right, and center, and they agree what I'm proposing will help create millions of jobs and generate historic economic growth. These are among the highest values investments we can make as a nation. I've often said our greatest strength is the power of our example, not just the example of our power. In my conversations with world leaders, and I've spoken over 38, 40 of them now, I've made it known, I've made it known America's back. You know what they say? The comment I hear most of all from them? They say, we see America's back, but for how long? But for how long? My fellow Americans, we have to show not just that we're back, but we're back to stay, and that we aren't going to go alone. We're going to do it by leading with our allies. No one nation can deal with all the crises of our time, from terrorism to nuclear proliferation, mass migration, cybersecurity, climate change, as well as what we're experiencing now, the pandemics. There's no wall high enough to keep any virus out. And our own vaccine supply, as it grows to meet our needs, and we're meeting them, will become an arsenal for vaccines for other countries, just as America is an arsenal for democracy for the world and a consequence influence the world. But every American will have access before that occurs. Every American have access to be fully covered by COVID-19 for the vaccines we have. Look, The climate crisis is not our fight alone. It's a global fight. The United States accounts, as all of you know, less than 15% of carbon emissions. 
What? Wait, what? The rest of the world accounts for 85%. Hard shift. That's why I kept my commitment to rejoin the Paris Accord, because if we do everything perfectly, it's not going to only matter. I kept my commitment to convene a climate summit right here in America with all the major economies of the world. China, Russia, India, European Union. I said I'd do it in my first hundred days. I want to be very blunt about it. I had my attempt was to make sure that the world could see there was a consensus that we are at an inflection point in history. And consensus is if we act to save the planet, we can create millions of jobs and economic growth and opportunity to raise the standard of living amongst everyone around the world. If you watched any of it and you were all busy, I'm sure you didn't have much time. That's what virtually every nation said, even the ones that aren't doing their fair share. The investments I proposed tonight also advance the foreign policy, in my view, that benefits the middle class. That means making sure every nation plays by the same rules in the global economy, including China. My discussions, in my discussion with President Xi, I told him, we welcome the competition. We're not looking for conflict. But I made absolutely clear that we will defend America's interest across the board. America will stand up to unfair trade practices and undercut American workers. This is like the seventh China mention, I think. It was more than I expected by a lot. State-owned operations and enterprises. I thought maybe what? of American technology and intellectual property. I also told President Xi that we'll maintain a strong military presence in the Indo-Pacific, just as we do with NATO and Europe. Not to start a conflict, but to Uh prevent one. Hoorah. We are not going to see. We cannot have it. I told them what I've said to many world leaders, that America will not back away from our commitments, our commitment to human rights and fundamental freedoms and to our alliances. And I pointed out to him, no responsible American president could remain silent when basic human rights are being so blatantly violated. Oh, shoot. An American president, president has to represent the essence of what our country stands for. America is an idea, the most unique idea in history. We are created, all of us, equal. It's who we are. And we cannot walk away from that principle and, in fact, say we're dealing with the American idea. With regard to Russia, I know it concerns some of you. But I made very clear to Putin. Okay. That we're not going to seek es- escala- ex- excuse me, escalation. But their actions will have consequences. They turn out to be true. And they turned out to be true. Which ones? So I responded directly and proportionally to Russia's interference in our elections. Oh, that one. And the cyber attacks on our government and our business. They did both of these things. Okay. And I told them we would respond, and we have. But we can also cooperate. When it's our mutual interest. Is he saying they're done responding? We did it when we extended the New START Treaty on nuclear arms. And we're working to do it on climate change. But he understands. We will respond. On Iran and North Korea, 
nuclear programs that present serious threats to American security and the security of the world. We're going to be working closely with our allies to address the threats posed by both of these countries. If there's a need for a rescue mission, when the world is threatened, when the world needs help, it calls on America. And that's the story. We have, without hyperbole, the greatest fighting force in the history of the world. I'm the first president in 40 years and knows what it means to have a son serving in a war zone. Today, we have service members serving in the same war zone as their parents did. We have service members in Afghanistan who are not yet born on 9-11. The war in Afghanistan, as we remember the debates here, were never meant to be multi-generational undertakings of nation building. We went to Afghanistan to get terrorists, the terrorists who attacked us on 9-11. And we said we would follow Osama bin Laden to the gates of hell to do it. If you've been in the upper Konar Valley, you've kind of seen the gates of hell. And we delivered justice to bin Laden. We degraded the terrorist threat of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And after 20 years of value, valor, and sacrifice, it's time to bring those troops home. Look. Even as we do, we'll maintain over-the-horizon capacity to suppress future threats to the homeland. Make no mistake, in 20 years, terrorism has metastasized. Chuck Schumer looks like a Batman villain in the audience. You see that? Those of you in the intelligence committees, the foreign relations committee, defense committees, you know well, we have to remain vigilant against the threats to the United States wherever they come from. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are in Yemen, Syria, Somalia, other places in Africa, in the Middle East, and beyond. And we won't ignore what our intelligence agencies have determined to be the most lethal terrorist threat to the homeland today. White supremacy is terrorist. Oh, terrorism. boy. We're not going to ignore that either. Oh, boy. My fellow Americans, look, we have to come together to heal the soul of this nation. It was nearly a year ago before her father's funeral when I spoke with Gianna Floyd, George Floyd's young daughter. She's a little tight, so I was kneeling down to talk to her. Making it a kid reference. So I could look her in the eye. She looked at me, she said... My daddy changed the world. Well, after the conviction of George Floyd's murderer, we can see how right she was if, if we have the courage to act as a country. I've loved kids jumping on my lap. We've all seen the knee of injustice on the neck of black Americans. Now's our opportunity to make some real progress. All right, cross off the George Floyd reference on your bingo card. The majority of men and women wearing a uniform and a badge serve our communities, and they serve them honorably. I know them. I know they want... Come on, man. Corn Pop was a bad dude. I know. They want to help meet this moment as well. My fellow Americans, we have to come together to rebuild trust between law enforcement and the people they serve, 
to root out systemic racism in our criminal justice system and to enact police reform in George Floyd's name that passed the House already. I know Republicans have their own ideas and are engaged in a very productive discussions with Democrats in the Senate. We need to work together to find a consensus. But let's get it done next month by the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. The country supports this reform, and Congress should act, should act. We have a giant opportunity to bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice, real justice. And with the plans outlined tonight, we have a real chance to root out systemic racism that plagues America and American lives in other ways. A chance to deliver real equity. Good jobs, good schools, affordable housing, clean air, clean water, being able to generate wealth and pass it down to generations because you have an access to purchase a house. Are we wrapping up? Real opportunities in the lives of more Americans, black, white, Latino, Asian Americans, Native Americans. Seems like a closer here. Look, I also want to thank the United States Senate for voting 94 to 1 to pass the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act to protect Asian American and Pacific Islanders. Oh, I did did not expect that reference. Decisively. Batman villain Chuck Schumer there in the front. You can see on television the viciousness of the hate crimes we've seen over the past year, past year and for too long. I urge the House to do the same and send that legislation to my desk, which I will gladly, anxiously sign. I also hope Congress will get to my desk the Equality Act to protect LGBTQ Americans. For all transgender Americans watching at home, especially young people, you're so brave. I want you to know your president has your back. Another thing. Let's authorize the Violence Against Women Act, which has been law for 27 years. Twenty-seven years ago, I wrote it. It'll close the act that has to be authorized now. We'll close the boyfriend loophole to keep guns out of the hands of abusers. The court order said this is an abuser. You can't own a gun. It's to close that loophole that existed. You know, it's estimated that 50 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner every month in America. 50 a month. Let's pass it and save some lives. And I need to I need not tell anyone this, but gun violence has become an epidemic in America. The flag at the White House was still flying at half-mast for the eight victims of the mass shooting in Georgia, when 10 more lives were taken in the mass shooting in Colorado. And in the week in between those two events, 250 other Americans were shot dead in the streets of America. 250 shot dead. I know how hard it is to make progress on this issue. In the 90s, we passed universal background checks, a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines that hold 100 rounds that can be fired off in seconds. We beat the NRA. 
mass shootings and gun violence decline. Check out the report over 10 years. But in the early 2000s, the law expired. We've seen daily bloodshed since. I'm not saying if the law continued, we wouldn't see bloodshed. More than two weeks ago in the Rose Garden, surrounded by some of the bravest people I know, the survivors and families who lost loved ones to gun violence, I laid out several of the Department of Justice actions that are being taken to impact on this epidemic. One of them is banning so-called ghost guns. These are homemade guns built from a kit that includes directions how to finish the firearm. The parts have no serial numbers. So they show up at crime scenes and they can't be traced. The buyers of these ghost gun kits aren't required to pass any background check. Anyone from a criminal or terrorist could buy this kit and within 30 minutes have a weapon that's lethal, but no more. And I'll do everything in my power to protect the American people from this epidemic of gun violence, but it's time for Congress to act as well. You never hear about those kinds of weapons in the actual crimes, though. That's what's so strange about the focus on that. But I guess it shows taking action, right? Ted Cruz is not clapping, does not seem pleased. I don't want to become confrontational, but we need more Senate Republicans to join the overall majority of Democratic colleagues and close the loopholes required in background check purchases of guns. We need a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And don't tell me it can't be done. We did it before and it worked. Talk to most responsible gun owners and hunters. They'll tell you there's no possible justification for having 100 rounds in a weapon. If you disagree, you're not responsible. What do you think, deer wearing Kevlar vests? <laughs> hey oh. What's... They'll tell you that there are too many people today who are able to buy a gun, but shouldn't be able to buy a gun. These kinds of reasonable reforms have overwhelming support from the American people, including many gun owners. The country supports reform this, and Congress should act. This shouldn't be a red or blue issue. And no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. From the very beginning, there were certain guns, weapons, that could not be owned by Americans. Certain people could not own those weapons ever. We're not changing the Constitution. We're being reasonable. I think this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. I think it's an American issue. And here's what else we can do. Immigration has always been essential to America. Let's end our exhausting war over immigration. I'm amazed it took this long for this topic to come up. The Constitution says that it's the right of the people to keep and bear arms and that it shall not be infringed. As far as the Constitution goes, it's pretty clear on that one. But you could always amend the Constitution. That seems like a direct route. We need to secure the border, pass it, because it has a lot of money for high-tech border security. Oh, really? Like a wall? If you believe in a pathway to citizenship, pass it. There's over 11 million undocumented folks, the vast majority of here, overstaying visas. Pass it. We can actually, if you actually want to solve a problem, I've sent a bill to take a close look at it. Ted Cruz had his eyes closed. 
We have to also have to get at the root problem of why people are fleeing, particularly the, to our southern border from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. I think he's fake following The violence, the corruption, the gangs, the political instability, hunger, hurricanes, earthquakes, natural disasters. When I was president, my president, when I was vice president, the president asked me to focus on providing help needed to address the root causes of migration. And it helped keep people in their own countries instead of being forced to leave. The plan was working, but the last administration decided it was not worth it. I'm restoring the program and asked Vice President Harris to lead our diplomatic effort to take care of this. Of course. I have absolute confidence she'll get the job done. She gets every job. Now look, if you don't like my plan, let's at least pass what we all agree on. Congress needs to pass legislation this year to finally secure protection for dreamers. The young people have only known America as their home. If Kamala has to take over, you know the line's going to be, well, she was always running primary lead on all of his important initiatives. She's ready to take over. ...who came from countries beset by man-made and natural-made violence and disaster. Climate change-related migration. As well as the pathway to citizenship for farm workers who put food on our tables. Look, immigrants have done so much for America during this pandemic and throughout our history. The country supports immigration reform. We should act. Let's argue over it. Let's debate it. But let's act. And if we truly want to restore the soul of America, we need to protect the sacred right to vote. Most people. First shot of Lindsey Graham. More people voted in the last presidential election than any time in American history. In the middle of the worst pandemic ever. It should be celebrated. Instead, it's being attacked. Congress should pass H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and send it to my desk right away. The country supports it, and Congress should act now. Look, in conclusion, as we gather here tonight, the image of a violent mob assaulting this Capitol, desecrating our democracy, remain vivid in all our minds. Lives were put at risk, many of your lives. Lives were lost. Extraordinary courage was summoned. The insurrection was an existential crisis, a test of whether our democracy could survive, and it did. But the struggle is far from over. The question of whether our democracy will long endure is both ancient and urgent. As old as our republic, still vital today. Can our democracy deliver on its promise that all of us, created equal in the image of God, had a chance to lead lives of dignity, respect, and possibility? Can our democracy deliver the most, to the most pressing needs of our people? Can our democracy overcome the lies, anger, hate, and fears that have pulled us apart? America's adversaries, the autocrats of the world, are betting we can't. And I promise you they're betting we can't. They believe we're too full of anger and division and rage. They look at the images of the mob that assaulted the Capitol as proof that the sun is sending on American democracy. But they're wrong. You know it, I know it. But we have to prove them wrong. 
We have to prove democracy still works, that our government still works, and we can deliver for our people. In our first 100 days together, we've acted to restore people's faith in democracy to deliver. We're vaccinating the nation. We're creating hundreds of thousands of new jobs. We're delivering real results to people. They can see it, feel it in their own lives. Opening doors of opportunity, guaranteeing some more fairness and justice. That's the essence of America. That's democracy in action. Our Constitution opens with the words as trite as it sounds, we the people. Well, it's time to remember that we the people are the government, you and I, not some force in a distant capital, not some powerful force that we have no control over. It's us. It's we the people. In another era, when our democracy was tested, Franklin Roosevelt reminded us in America, we do our part. We all do our part. That's all I'm asking, that we do our part, all of us. But if we do that, we will meet the center challenge of the age by proving that democracy is durable and strong. Autocrats will not win the future. We will. America will. And the future belongs to America. As I stand here tonight before you in a new and vital hour of life and democracy of our nation, and I can say with absolute confidence, I have never been more confident or optimistic about America, not because I'm president, because of what's happening with the American people. We've stared into the abyss of insurrection and autocracy, pandemic and pain, and we, the people, did not flinch. The very moment our adversaries were certain we'd pull apart and fail, we came together, we united. With light and hope, we summoned a new strength, new resolve to position us to win the competition of the 21st century. On our way to a union more perfect, more prosperous, and more just as one people, one nation, and one America. Folks, as I told every world leader I've ever met with over the years, it's never, ever, ever been a good bet to bet against America, and it still isn't. We're the United States of America. There is not a single thing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. We can do whatever we set our minds to if we do it together. Nothing. So let's begin to get together. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you for your patience. There it is, the first speech to a joint session of Congress by President Biden, about one hour, five minutes. He campaigned as a bipartisan dealmaker, and he is proceeding to set out as his agenda, perhaps the most ambitious progressive agenda since LBJ or even Franklin Roosevelt, who he invoked this evening. I think it was the one Democratic president he mentioned tonight in his speech. He loves, he loves the uh, Roosevelt comparison. You know, here's the reality, though. The first 100 days that Biden has been in office, he's bombed Syria. We still have kids in cages. We have no Medicare for all, no $15 minimum wage, and it's probably not going to happen. Maybe for better, maybe not. He lied about $2,000 stimulus checks. It wasn't $2,000. He's privatizing the war in Afghanistan. He's spinning up contractors while taking troops out. And there has been zero student debt cancellation, which he also promised on the campaign trail. 
So if you want to call him progressive by those benchmarks, I don't really see it. I do think he has been more, more drunk with cash than anyone expected. This plan's just wild. Now, as far as his performance, I give him an A. When I do grade on a scale for Joe Biden, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a, it was a little snoozy. The audio was messed up. There was a room tone. You could hear chairs and cell phones. It, the production wasn't that great, but he did a lot better than I expected. You can see how, if you're watching the video version, he's just sitting, standing right next to Bernie, touching his wife and no COVID distance. But anyways, I thought actually Joe did a lot better than I expected. There was some slurring. There were some gaffes. But in the end, I actually think I was expecting a little bit less. But you know, the media is going to really slobber all over this one. They're going to go nuts. They're going to love it. So I'll leave that off the recorded version. We're going to keep streaming here for a bit and watch some of that. But I won't torture those of you on the download feed. Thanks for joining me. I hope this was enjoyable, and I'll see you next week. This is our looking at inside, or look at this, these protesters are inside Statuary Hall. This is an incredibly dangerous situation that's unfolding here in the United States. It's uh, stunning, Wolf. It's absolutely stunning, and it's quite frankly dangerous. Uh, President Trump could stop this with one tweet. The words of the president matter. This was a fraudulent election. At the best, can inspire. We love you. You're very special. The words of the president matter. It was a landslide election, election. At the worst, beginning sight. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. Sorry, at this hour, our democracy is under unprecedented assault. Ah. Unlike anything we've seen in modern times, all of you have been watching an assault. Ah. Let me be very clear. The scenes of chaos at the Capitol, disorder, it must end now. Ah. I call on President Trump. Step up. Go on national television now. The work of the next four years must be the restoration of democracy, of decency, honor, respect, the rule of law. Just plain, simple decency. The words of the president matter. This was a fraudulent election.